Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 25. This is the text that we'll be in this morning. And I'm excited to be in it. And as you know, today marks the day that the church typically calls Palm Sunday. It's the day that we remember Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, typically, traditionally, which really begins what is typically called Passion Week. And we know from our recent study through Luke's gospel, if you've been with us for the past four and a half years, and we've just finished Luke's gospel, and we know from that book that Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem was more likely Monday. We call it Palm Monday, but we don't meet then. So we'll meet on Sunday and, and talk about it a little bit. But it certainly was true that it was all leading to Friday. His entrance into Jerusalem was leading towards Friday when God's Lamb would die as a substitute for sinners. Then furthermore, it would lead towards Sunday when he would be raised in victory. And so this day, typically celebrating the entrance into Jerusalem, after leaving Mary's, Martha's, and Lazarus's house the night before, and then entering Jerusalem, it would be the beginning of the storm. There is much to be learned from the account of the triumphal entry. And we've seen those themes over and over and over again for the past four and a half years as we've studied Luke. And really what they boil down to, if you know salvific history and the biblical theology, which we've learned all throughout Luke's gospel, the progression of God's redemptive narrative called the Bible, we understand that by the time he came into Jerusalem, and really came on the scene in terms of his ministry, the superficial messianic expectations were abounding, which led to a superficial acceptance of Jesus only to lead to an eventual rejection of Jesus when the selfish, superficial expectations weren't met regarding Jesus. It would ultimately lead to his execution, where they killed him. And this tragic reality is perhaps most clear in the triumphal entry. The tragic reality that the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-expected Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one, the coming king, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies through the line of David, the Messiah who was to redeem God's people, he was... On earth, he arrived, and they missed it because their expectations were wrong. They expected an earthly king who would defeat all of their Gentile oppressors, i.e. the Romans, free them, exalt them to do what they wanted, keep their traditions, and keep their place of self-righteousness. And he did the opposite. He told them that they were sinners, that... Their descending through the line of Abraham made no difference, that all needed salvation and that he came to save sinners and that they had to repent 
and trust in him as the son of God, the one who lives perfectly and dies on behalf of sinners, to have salvation for sin, that he's the Lord, that he must be obeyed and followed. And they didn't want that type of Messiah. And so the tragic reality really is perhaps most clear in the triumphal entry. They're reciting Psalm 118, parts of it at least. They're laying down their branches. They're asserting his Lord, his Messiahship. They're laying down their cloaks, which is pointing to his royalty, his Messiahship. They believe this is the coming king, the king of David, at least superficially. The, the descendant of David. They're praising him with loud voices. They're praising him with emotions as he comes in. And Jesus's response to their emphatic praises is to weep for them. They are praising him with all their might. At least they thought. And his response is to look upon them and weep. Because no matter how sincere they seemed, what, their, what seemed to be belief really was, was misinformed and self-serving. And as soon as Jesus didn't meet their expectations, as soon as he didn't serve their self-centered motives, when he required repentance, for instance, when he came back the next day and then cleansed the temple, when he made clear their sin, when he declared himself to be the Lord, when he infringed upon their control over the temple in Jerusalem when he asserted his exclusive truth and when he became a threat to what they wanted, they crucified him. Turn to Galatians 4.16. Just turn back a minute. I'll tell you why we're in five in a few minutes in case you're wondering. But go back to Galatians 4.16. This is essentially what Paul was saying. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the what? Truth. The truth. That's what happened to Christ. Or turn to John. We'll just see a Jesus say it himself about himself. John chapter 7, verse 7. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And here's why it hates him. Because I testify about it that its works are what? Evil. They hated him because he made it plain to them that they were sinners. And so they crucified him and they claimed that it was in service to God. They claimed that it was in service to God, that they were doing, they were honoring God by crucifying the Son of God. And uh, I'm not sure, as we just talk about this briefly, I'm just not sure that this whole triumphal entry and all of its principles could be any more relevant 
to our world. For the nature of what we're seeing today, there are many who claim to know, love, worship, experience, live for, follow, praise Christ, claiming that he's their savior and king, and yet they claim that in light of their own terms, their own expectations. They claim that in light of what they want Christ to be, rather than his objective, external, clear word that makes it clear who he is, what he came to do, how to truly worship him, how to follow him rightly, and what is true and what's not. In other words, we can experience Jesus in our own way, but if it's not his way, which is the only way, then it really is no way. And so God does not compromise his truth. There's a lot of made-up versions about Jesus. And that's essentially what the Israelites were doing. They had made up an image of a Messiah in their mind and come up with an idea of what he was going to accomplish by falsely interpreting the scriptures. I mean, that's exactly what happened. And man, that's true of today. There is a right and there is a wrong. There is a true Jesus and there is a false Jesus. And error will lead to all kinds of evil. So just a slight error in who Christ is will lead to all kinds of evil. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, A little leaven leavens the whole what? Lump. So however subtle or seemingly noble or genuine, when Jesus becomes a threat to certain desires, when he fails to meet expectations, when his ways are an inconvenience, when repentance, obedience, truth becomes too restrictive, just too restrictive. I want to live free. I want to know the Jesus that I know and I feel is right. This is who I think he is. This is how I experience him, right? When, when the true Jesus becomes true restrictive, one, of, one or two things happens. Either people walk away from Jesus, essentially call for his crucifixion, or secondly, they change Jesus. You either walk away from him or you change him. And uh, people change Jesus into what they want him to be. They feel like he should be into what he's not. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's exactly what happens. They start following a self-made version of Jesus because it resonates with them and gives them what they want. And it becomes plain that they never really knew the true Jesus and trusted in the true gospel for salvation. And this is true all over the Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. You guys probably know this passage or have heard it before, but Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who find it, those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. 
Go move on to chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are scary words. Go to John's gospel. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verses 31 through 32. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right? That's, that's true freedom, the word of God. Go, uh, I won't make you turn back there, but we skipped over a, a little section, Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. There's more to it. But Jesus. Jesus was, was the Messiah that was coming to save sinners. The Jews wanted a Messiah who would bring victory over their earthly enemies, exalt them to a place of prominence so they could be free to do just as they wanted. Literally, here's the Messiah coming. He's going to free us from Rome. He's going to exalt us. He's going he's to encourage us in our lineage and our law keeping. And he's going to affirm the way that we um, go about our traditions, these external traditions, and, um, and he's going to allow us to live however we want. And Jesus was the exact opposite. And so today we're seeing the same reality, but here's the reality of the situation. Jesus is who he is. His truth is what it is. And he came to bring salvation for sinners. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. His sheep hear his voice and follow him. He's our Lord, so we submit to him. We, we submit even our traditions and our desires to him. He sanctifies us in the truth. His word is truth. And so perhaps maybe a good title, if you were to do a Palm Sunday sermon, which you would expect today, would be maybe, does Jesus weep over your worship? Or could it be something like, he is who he is? or maybe true submission to the true king. So in light of all that, I think you could, should contemplate that, but that's not what we're gonna teach today. So sermon one is coming to a close. And in light of the fact that it's been rooted in us, these principles really have been recently rooted in us in focusing on Luke's gospel. We're gonna be focusing obviously on Christ's death on Good Friday, his resurrection on Easter, Traditionally, we would spend the entire time talking about Palm Sunday this morning, but as we've just closed out really that narrative, even the passion narrative itself, um, this standalone week, we are going to focus on Galatians chapter 5, so you can go back there, Galatians chapter 5, and in case you want to know the schedule, this week on Friday, Good Friday sermon service, uh, focusing on Christ's crucifixion, Easter, his what? Resurrection. And then the week after that, we're going to start the book, ready? Of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. All right, so you can read that in, um, in your own time and prepare for that. I'm really excited to begin that. You know Luke's gospel is the longest and the most dense in the New Testament. So when we started Luke, um, I threw you into the deep end of the pool, okay? And so 1 Thessalonians is a wonderful book. It's very simple. It's very clear. 
There's not very many interpretive challenges to it. It's very encouraging. It's an epistle versus a narrative. I think you're going to notice the difference in that. Logical instruction versus um, uh, pulling this meaning and implications from the narrative. So I'm very excited to begin this. We'll start that on the 16th. But sermon one closed. Let's move to Galatians 5, 13 through 26. And uh, this will be our text this morning. And uh, let's start as we always do by reading it. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 13 through 25, sorry. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage or anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What a wonderful passage. And what we're seeing in this section, this passage here, is Paul encouraging this local congregation, you ready? Main point, Paul is encouraging this local congregation to live in freedom and to live led by the Holy Spirit. He's encouraging this local congregation to live in freedom, being led by the Holy Spirit, which is why I've entitled this message, Walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. And this is the message that Paul is making clear here in this section, walking by the Spirit. And so this is a message, listen now, this is a message that the church in Galatia desperately needed to hear. The Old Testament rituals, listen now, the Old Testament rituals and regulations had run deep in their blood. The Old Testament regulations and rituals had run deep in their blood. And the Judaizers were attempting to pull these new believers in the gospel back into the oppressive slavery of the law. So the Judaizers were pulling, were attempting to pull these new believers, this local congregation in Galatia, these new believers back into the slavery and the oppression of the law. 
into the ceremonies of the legal system, which were impossible to keep and represented foremost by circumcision. And so the law, it was an outward, temporary shadow of what believers would truly experience in Christ, which was true holiness, true cleansing, true acceptance from God. It was a shadow of what they would genuinely experience in Christ. Holiness, cleansing, right standing with God. They would genuinely experience this in Christ. And this was but a shadow of what they would experience. And it wouldn't be based on their own works or their own insufficient merit, but on Christ's sufficient merit. And so the work of Christ brought complete righteousness to a believer, which is imputed to them. It makes a believer in Christ, if you're in Christ, this is true of you, once and for all, right with God. Once and for all, in right standing with God forever. And this would become the reality for believers. However, this would also become a stumbling block even to the most sincere Jewish believer. Because the temptation would be to revert back to the slavery of the rabbinic traditions. Even attempting to live as a Christian, but functionally requiring adherence to the law to attempt to attain God's favor. And so it would be like you becoming a believer, knowing you're, you have right standing with God, you're free in Christ, and you know that, but functionally requiring of yourself or others requiring of you to adhere to the law for right standing with God would become a stumbling block. What do you do with this freedom? How do you ensure holiness? How do you become changed if there's not an adherence to a law to earn God's favor? So this was legalism, basing one's standing with God upon one's own works. You have to understand our works in Christ are extremely important, aren't they? But they serve as evidence, not as earning. They serve as a result of our love for God and our desire to be like him, which is true of every person who's come to know Christ and who is being transformed by his spirit. You want to be like Christ. You hate sin. You love holiness. You don't want anything to do with your old life. You want to know God and be under the safety and the shelter of his wings. And that's true of every believer. Works are important. James says the works are the evidence of our faith right? But it's not the earning. And that's where we can get it mixed up. So when we get to chapter five, verse 13, Paul has really just finished admonishing this Galatian church in salvation by grace through faith in Christ. He's just got done admonishing them. I want to just take you on this road for just a second. Okay. Go to Galatians chapter one, verse six. We're just gonna, we're gonna follow the trail a little bit till we get to our text, okay? These standalone sermons are a little bit hard because I gotta give you so much context before we get into it. Galatians chapter one, verse six. And here's what he's calling their departure. He's calling their departure from grace through faith into this, in, back into the law. He's calling it a different gospel. 
Galatians chapter one, verse six, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a what? A different gospel. If you go to chapter two, verse seven, chapter two, verse seven, Paul is speaking of his ministry to the Gentiles. Listen up here. He's speaking of his ministry to the Gentiles, those without the Old Testament law, how the gospel saved them. They don't even have the Old Testament law, and yet how Peter and James and John's instructions to require circumcision for the new Gentile believers and how Paul opposed them. Okay, so read uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 16. It says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through, uh, through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, who's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they, um, and they to be to the, uh, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, and he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And what he's essentially saying here is, he's saying... This is not the way that believers come to know Christ. Obviously, the Gentiles who are without the law have been saved just like the Jews. Why still require that of them? If you go to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul addresses now their attempt to be sanctified by keeping the Old Testament law. Look at this. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the spirit? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so we see him continue this in verses 10 through 11. Move forward. Paul here makes clear the impossibility of keeping the law as a means for justification. For all who, verse 10, chapter three, all who rely on the works of the law are under a what? Curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, if you try to make your right standing with God based upon the law, you know what you have to do? Keep the whole law. And it's impossible. And so chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. I know we're moving fast. But I was ambitious today, and so we got to keep moving, okay? Verses 19 through 22. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom 
the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In other words, Salvation in Christ is the only means by which someone can be saved. The law, all it does is prove that you're a what? Sinner. So chapter five then, verses one through three, just keep going here. Paul tells the Galatians to hold fast to the true gospel and that if they accept circumcision as a means of justification, then it becomes clear that they're trusting in their works for justification. And if trusting in their works for salvation, one must keep the whole law to have salvation. So here's what he's saying in chapter five, verses one through three. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, therefore do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of what? No advantage to you. It's not that if they're only circumcised, but if they accept circumcision as a means of justification, then it's clear they're not trusting in Christ as the merit of their justification. And then he is of no value at all. Verse three, chapter five, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the what? The whole law. If you jump ahead, right? If you, let me show you this, actually, the seriousness of this matter. Look at chapter five, verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Everyone who's telling you this, these Judaizers, I wish they would emasculate themselves. And I won't go into the details about what that means here, but I, I could, but we just don't have the time to do it. But chapter six, I mean, yeah, let's jump ahead to chapter six, verse 12. It says this, this is at the end of the book here. He says this, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cost, cross of Christ. In other words, he gives the reason that the Judaizers are requiring this, and it's because of the persecution that's coming from the Jews. The Jewish believers are seemingly abandoning the law by trusting in Christ, and they're being persecuted. You've, you've abandoned the law. You're going with the flesh. You're becoming worldly because you're trusting in grace by faith. How are you going to be holy? What's going to regulate you? How are you going to make sure you please God? And so Paul wishes that those unsaved Jews would realize that their own sin is a reality in light of the law and that they would trust in Christ as well. Because look at what he says here in verses 13 through 18 here in chapter six. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So even the ones who are claiming that you need to be they themselves are lawbreakers. I wish they would realize that and trust in Christ, right? But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. I I like to say that a lot as a pastor here. (laughs) From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so he's giving this closing statement, so to speak. Now, if we get to verse 13, back in chapter five, go a little bit earlier. Paul has just now really closed out this main argument throughout the entire book of this right standing with God apart from God's law by grace through faith. He's talking about freedom here. Look at chapter five, verse 13 to start our text. You were called to what? Freedom, brothers. Freedom. Having freedom from having to keep God's law as a means of right standing with God. That's amazing. That's a miracle. That's true freedom. That's freedom that we should boast in and enjoy. But then he moves to chapter five, verse 14. Well, really chapter five and then uh, verse 13, the second part of it here. And he transitions then into how the believer should view their new permanent right standing with God. That is, okay, if I'm in right standing with God by grace through faith, well, how do I live in light of that? How, how do I live in light of this? How do I live in a, and not indulge in the flesh, abuse the grace that's given? How, how, if you're only saved by grace through faith, what governs the believer? How do they change? How do, how do they make sure they're not indulging in their past life and abusing grace? And this is the answer that he's, this is the answer that he's giving here. The freedom to become more like Christ is the freedom that you have. Listen, believer, I want you to listen to this. The freedom that you have from being saved by grace through faith in Christ is not a freedom to indulge in sin and to abuse the grace that's given. It's freedom to refrain from sin. It's freedom to become like Christ. And it's freedom to walk by the Spirit. Paul's gonna do a I'm gonna do a flyover of this section of what Paul's doing today. We don't have time to cover it in a lot of detail. But Paul explains how you are to live now in this righteous freedom, in this righteous freedom. So I'm gonna divide the matter into four brief points, loving, leading, leaving, and living. Loving, leading, leaving, and living. And we're gonna cover these very briefly. So number one, we get to the loving in verses 13 through 15. Let's read it. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve, the, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now listen close, okay? You ready? Stay on this track with me until we get to the end here, okay? Paul is summarizing his argument in verse 13. You 
have been called to what? Freedom. Right standing with God apart from the law. He says you were called to freedom. Freedom from trying to keep the law as a means for justification. He calls them brothers. This is writing to a local congregation who had trusted in Christ for salvation. And then in verse 13b, he moves into this. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the what? For the flesh. And that's what they're being accused of by the Judaizers. They're being accused of this. They're saying, yes, you who are now Christians, these new Christians, you're just going to say that and then you're going to live however you want. How are you going to govern that? That is, also, they may be tempted to engage in the flesh. You ever think that? Well, that's my right standing's not going to really change because it's based on Christ. So I can sin and kind of get away with it. But Paul here is making clear that freedom in the gospel is not tolerance of sin nor indulging in sin. It's not freedom to gratify the flesh. It's freedom and empowering to oppose it with an underlying confidence in the gospel that you're accepted in Christ. The flesh is not merely our physical bodies, by the way. Our flesh is our sinful inclinations that are natural to mankind. All men are born what? Sinners. And so he says this, only, in other words, this must be recognized. Do not, this is what not to do. Use your freedom, uh, your right standing with God right? Your, your, your grace with God, uh, your, your right standing before him by the grace of God as an opportunity because of your right standing with God for the flesh to allow for or to engage in sin. Christian freedom is not an opportunity to do what you yourself, what you want. It's for the first time you are now able and can do what God wants. And that's amazing. God wants, and you can do it because you love him, because you have a spirit, and because you want to please him, and because you're already pleasing to him, and because you want to be like him. So he says this, but, look at verse 13, but through love, so but, on the contrary, right, through love serve one another. So here's the deal. They were influenced by these Judaizers, Judaizers, this congregation, to engage in false judgments towards one another in relation to keeping the law. And so they were biting and devouring one another because they were, they were promoting justification by works and requiring it of everybody. And so not only are they tempted to live in sin because they have grace, not only will they maybe revert to that, but also, ironically, they're living in the flesh by requiring the law so that people don't live in the flesh. And by requiring that, they're actually living in the what? The flesh. And so he, he's just clearing all this up. How does the believer live then in light of the freedom in Christ? And he says this, through love, serve one another. And so they were influenced by these Judaizers to engage in false judgments in relation to keeping the law, but they are to not live like that. Their freedom in Christ allows them now to help one another, to build one another up in Christ, to turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four. Turn to Ephesians chapter four. 
Ephesians chapter four, verse 11. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the church is equipped. And then what does it do for the building up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by hunting uh, human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth and love, we are to what? Grow up in every way into him from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This freedom is supposed to result in this love and they're to be servant hearted. Philippians, go to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, verses five through seven. It says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. They're to become like Christ. And so here's what he's saying. Your freedom in Christ should result in your love for others. This is how you are to live. And look at what he says in verse 14. Got to move here. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Isn't that interesting? He's doing this intentional. He says, you so value the law. You want to keep it. You want to make sure you're not breaking it. I'll tell you how you can keep it. You ready? Love one another. Love one another. Because in this love, it sums up the whole law. It's fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the way you should live. So this is a valuable thing. What he's saying is this doesn't mean because you're free from the law that God's value system has changed. His law is the same. His moral law is the same. But you want to know how you can keep it, even though you've been freed from it? Love one another. Then you can make sure you're not abusing grace. Then you can make sure you're not abusing the law. Then these Judaizers have no leg to stand on. And so the Christian can freely aspire to fulfill God's moral law by loving, out of love, love for God, a desire to be like Christ, a desire to be holy, a hatred of sin and its consequences without a paralyzing fear of God's righteous judgment anymore, enabled, uh, being enabled by the sanctifying spirit, the old life is done away with, it's been crucified and paid for, and now we can love freely. These Galatians can fulfill God's law. Look at verse 15. It says this, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In other words, you will reap according to the flesh if you live by the flesh. And ironically, by them trying to prevent the flesh through requiring the law, they were actually living by the flesh. And what Paul is saying here is it's gonna come back to bite you. It's gonna come back to bite you right? And so it's going to come back to bite you. It's going to destroy your own faith and it's going to destroy the church. It's going to destroy the church. So he says, love one another. That's how you live free in Christ and build one another up in love. That's the freedom you have. And so that's the loving. And now Paul's going to tell them how they are to walk. Let's move into the leading. Verses 15 through 19. 
says this, 16 through 19, I'm sorry. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the, the law. Now, this is amazing. Stay with me, okay? This, here's what he's saying. Holiness, it comes only by the Holy Spirit and not through performance-driven rituals. That will not produce your holiness. It's gonna come internally, where you have been made right by Christ. You have his spirit indwelling in you. You allow his spirit to transform you and you will become truly holy, a life that's manifesting a love for God. It's not superficial. He's telling these Galatians, you don't need external rituals, performance-driven rituals so that you look good. He said, you've been made right by Christ. Now keep in step with the spirit, essentially. And let the Spirit produce all this great uh, godly fruit in you. That's how you'll make sure that you're not abusing grace. Let the Spirit of God produce this in you. What believers should do, rather than using it as an opportunity for the flesh, is to allow the Spirit to bear fruit. He's so, they're so concerned with keeping the law, but should not be concerned as terms of external performance, they should be truly changed. And so here's what he says in verse 16, but contrary in contrast, in contrast to what? In contrast to using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, in contrast to devouring one another, in contrast to, 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 to abusing grace, he says walk. Now I want to point this out because this is kind of the main point here. Ready? Look at this. He says walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Walk. This is very, very pointed. It's a present tense verb, which means a continuous action. You could translate it in some cases, walking. Keep walking, walking. It's, it's, it's progress, it's ongoing. It's not something that's happened and is done. It's something that continues on. Walk, present tense, continuous action, imperative. It's a present imperative meaning it's a command. That's the mood that it's in. It's not a suggestion. So it's a continuous action and it's commanded. Walk by the Spirit. It's not a suggestion, right? And so his choice of words here is very interesting because what does this mean now? You tell me, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, here's what he's telling us here. Walk. It's very simple to understand. What does that imply? It implies step-by-step progress. It implies effort. It implies direction towards a destination. It implies engagement by the believer in Christ. That's what it requires. Yet by the Spirit implies that the source of the ability to put forth effort to walk comes from who? The Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. That's what the language is showing us here. Walk. You got to continue walking. Put forth the effort to become holy. And the only way you're able to do that is through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so this comes from the Spirit. 
And this is the paradox of holy living, Christian. Listen, you don't need an external driven, performance driven law to keep you superficially from doing what you want. You need to put forth effort to walk with God while the Holy Spirit inside you empowers you to do so. And you will become truly transformed from the inside out. That's what's being said here. The believer's will and action are involved and the Spirit's power is involved. The power is entirely from the Spirit. Just as in salvation, power to save is entirely in Jesus Christ, but both in salvation and sanctification, man's commitment is called for. And Mike's done a wonderful job at telling us that. It's showing us that balance. The Holy Spirit indwells a believer at the point of salvation. Listen, let me tell you this. Romans chapter eight. Go there and go to Romans chapter eight, verse nine. It says this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Ephesians chapter one, go to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. It says this in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of, Christ, uh, of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were what? Sealed. When you heard the gospel, you were sealed by the spirit. In other words, when does the Holy Spirit come? When you're saved. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside. And you know what the spirit does? As you put forth effort to walk with God, it convicts you concerning sin and righteousness. The Spirit, he gives you a desire for God's truth as you seek to understand and live by and learn and read God's truth every morning. And he leads the believer to understand God's truth as you're attempting to understand it. And he empowers you to obey that truth as you're attempting to obey it. And he's... And he's Empowering you to fight sin as you're fighting. He's breaking the desire of sin, increasing the desire for righteousness, increasing the believer's love for God, reminding the believer of God's truth, inclining the believer to depend on God in prayer as the believer schedules time to pray. And then he gives you power in witnessing. He gives you understanding. How are you empowered to witness? Well, you know what he does? He gives you understanding of God's truth. He convicts you so much that this is God's truth. And then he gives you confidence in God's truth. And so you stand there with a non-believer and you're so convicted by the true word of God that you won't compromise. All you're going to do is proclaim it no matter what happens. Because you're convinced by it. He gives you confidence in it. He gives you conviction to obey God's word to make disciples. He cultivates in you a compassion for the lost. And so in all these ways, as we put forth effort, the spirit of God in our hearts brings boldness and clarity and accuracy and compassion and obedience and assurance. And the believer is to put forth effort as the spirit does his work. That's how you won't abuse grace. Philippians chapter two, verse 12. Look at that. Philippians two twelve. It says this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my present, but much more in my absence, work out what? Your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wait a second. <laughs> what are you telling me to do here? Work out your own salvation, for it's God who works in you. Wait a second. And that's the answer. And if you do this, 
Here's what is being said. Go back to Galatians. You will not gratify the flesh. This is what Paul's saying. This is how you don't gratify the flesh. Walk by the spirit. How do I not abuse grace? If I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the flesh. Why? Why is that true? I got to close this soon. So follow with me here. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you do this, you will not gratify the flesh and that's how the Christian freedom is to be lived. That's how Christian freedom is to be lived. Walk by the spirit. That's pretty simple, huh? And that's how you won't walk in the flesh. And this is what they were being accused of right? And so verse 17 then, because why? The flesh is opposed to the spirit. The spirit is opposed to the flesh. Paul uses this term flesh to speak of the old man, meaning you before you were in Christ, your old self, right? He talks about that in, uh, of himself in Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8. The old man. And so the old man still clings. He still clings to you. The believer's wants. Uh, there's still that desperately wicked inclination that the believer had before being saved in Christ. And that flesh wants what is in opposition to the spirit. And what the spirit wants is in opposition to the flesh. And so the spirit, as you walk in the spirit, will not allow you to gratify what you want, which you shouldn't. That's what he's saying here. What you want is not a good want. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to the man, and in the end, it ends in what? Destruction. And so those who walk by the Spirit will not gratify the flesh. This is how holiness comes about for true believers in Christ. You're free. You walk by the Spirit, you put forth effort as the spirit does his work in you. These are opposed. So you don't do what you want, which you shouldn't anyway, because those come out of your sinful condition, your old man, your old self. And so he ends this. Let me just show you this. He says, if you are led by the spirit, look at verse 18, you are not under the law. This very simple. You're not doing this for external performance. You're not doing this as one who's under the law to earn God's favor. You're doing this now, if you live like this, as one who has been free in Christ, who is now being made holy by the Spirit. It's a very different person. That's a very different person, okay? So let me just mention these last two points here because they're obvious and straightforward and you can study them more on your own time. And I forgot to wear my watch today, so I have no time, no idea even where we're at on time. That's why I keep mentioning it. So... Let's go to number three here, verses 19 through 21, leaving, leaving. In other words, if this is true, what are you going to leave behind? Those things are going to be evident and obvious. They're going to be evident and obvious. If you walk by the spirit, you're not going to abuse grace because if you do, and you're not walking by the spirit, those are going to be obviously from the flesh. And anyone who walks in the spirit, who loves God, who is in Christ, won't have any part of those things in their lives. What are those things? Here's what he says in verses 19 through 21. Works of the flesh are evident. If you abuse grace, it's going to be clear. 
Here's what it says. Works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The old man, the spirit-led believer, will leave these things behind. He will leave these things behind. And you say, are these all of them that he will leave behind? Well, here's what he says at the end. Things like what? Things like these. This is just a selective summary. You know, Jesus gives us a list too. I want you to see that. Mark 7. Go there real quick. Mark chapter 7. Jesus gives us a list too. Mark 7, 20 through 23. It says this. Whatever comes out of a person is what defiles a person. For from within, out of the heart, a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You know, Paul gives us another list. Let's go to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. It's important that you see these. Romans chapter one, verses 29 through 31. It says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, they, though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give appro- approval to those who practice them. One more, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is the old man, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit, by our God." Now, let me tell you something. He says here at the end, if you practice these things in Galatians 5, you will not inherit what? Kingdom of God. It's not earning your salvation. That's the whole point. It's the evidence. You practice those things, it's clear you're not walking by the Spirit, abusing grace, and you might as well not have, it's, the probability is that you don't, don't even have Christ if that's how you live. So he's saying you're not gonna abuse grace because at that case, your salvation's on the line as to whether or not you even know Christ, the evidence would prove otherwise, right? So let me point out one thing here, last thing in this point, is that this is plural. He says in verse 19, these are the works of the flesh. In plural, the fruit of the spirit is singular. The works of the flesh, you might not have all these. These would be selected to maybe people based upon inclinations, experience, opportunities, The fruit of the Spirit, all believers will exhibit all of them 
to some degree or another. Though not all the same, all to one degree or another, you will bear all of these. And so let's look at him. He says this, as we look at the living, the last point, which is how we should live in Christ. He says this, number four, uh, four here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, if you're in Christ, you're walking by the Spirit, this is what will be produced in you. And this is how the free believer should live and what, will his li- and what his life will look like because of his effort and the Spirit's producing this fruit as he's putting forth effort. It's obvious. The flesh will be obvious and the fruit of the Spirit will be obvious. So this is what your, your life should look like. This is how the believer becomes holy as he puts forth effort and the Spirit produces these things in him and he leaves behind those things. What are these things that the Spirit produces in him? Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things should be in your life, and you should desire those things. You should have those things. You should want those things, and the Spirit should be producing those things in you. And so this is what the Spirit produces in us. And he says this, against such things there is no what? If you want those things and the Spirit's producing those things, then you don't need an external performance-driven law to regulate your life because there's no law against those things. You won't be abusing grace. You don't have to worry about it. That's what he's saying here. So let me just mention this, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been, have crucified the flesh. The ones who belong to Christ They're not living in those same ways with its passions and desires. They've crucified the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, in other words, synonymous with walking by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, meaning put forth this effort as the Spirit produces this in you. You will produce this fruit and you'll leave behind the flesh. This is how freed people are to be made holy. Judaizer says, oh, I can't understand this. If you don't have the law, how are you going to make sure you don't indulge in sin? And he just explained it to us. You don't need a law for this because what the Spirit's producing in you isn't against the law. You keep in step with the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and you will live a life honoring to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I come and just ask you to take your word and produce the fruit in us, that we would become people who are not externally changed, not externally performing, but we become people who are internally being transformed, being made holy by walking by the Spirit for your glory, out of a love for you, out of a love for others, out of a desire to be like Christ. We know we've been freed. We know we have right standing. And we don't abuse that, but instead 
We're thankful for the opportunity to keep your law by the power of your spirit and be made more like Christ. This is how freed people live. This is how we're sanctified as Christians. Let it be true of us in Jesus' name, amen.